we've been doing a series. Um, well, actually, we've just started a new series, almost. Thy kingdom come, from Advent to Easter in the Gospel of Matthew. And so in just a couple of weeks, we're going to, we're going to be starting into the, uh, the chapter one of the book of Matthew and then getting into the story of, of, of Christ's coming, of his birth. And we're going to carry on through the Gospel of Matthew from Advent season and Christmas time all the way around into Easter. And you know, if you've read ahead, you know how the Gospel ends with the Resurrection Sunday, right? And then the commission out of that. So you already know where we're going. You say, ah, I've heard that before. (laughs) You need to hear it again. Trust me, you desperately need to hear the gospel again. We all do every Sunday, every day, week by week, we need to hear the gospel again. So we're going to devote that time, Advent to Easter, to just step into the gospel story again. And uh, one of the ways we're we're, uh, getting into that in this Advent season, uh, ties in with the Bethlehem candle actually, is we're considering a couple of the bigger picture prophetic trends in the Old Testament that lead us into the Gospels. There are things that the Gospels point out, this is done to fulfill. And so we want to step back first and we're looking at some of those Old Testament prophecies. Why do they say what they say in order to move us in this direction? And I mentioned there's a Bethlehem candle. The church always turns our attention to Bethlehem this time of year, don't we? So I thought I would take you to Bethlehem. I have a couple of pictures. No, not that one. I have another picture. That's the picture I have. Yes, I stepped out of my order. But uh, this is a picture, an old picture and a newer picture from the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. This is the site that they commemorate as uh, the church built over the location that historically from uh, A.D. 200 or so and then forward from there uh, was, uh, was the site that was honored as the place where Jesus was born. And so to come in, now it's a very large church, a very large church of the nativity, but when you come in, you don't have big double doors like we might have. I don't think this place would ever meet fire code, okay? Because everybody who comes in to the church of the nativity must bow in order to enter. Everybody who comes in comes in through this door of humility. That's why I included the old picture. You see the same door way back there behind the camel that you see right up front here with my lovely wife, Julie, bowing in order to enter. Everybody must bow in order to enter into the church of the nativity. There's an there's a implied humility there, isn't there? Interesting object lesson that the uh, ancient church gave us. The, the humility of Bethlehem. One more picture I have tying into Bethlehem. Uh, while we were there, we visited Bethlehem. Our group was, was, was going in, and we entered the place of, of the place of the shepherd's fields. And our group all wandered off to this place where there was going to be some explaining and a presentation. But some, one of our group actually wandered off by himself. And, but I wandered off to a place where I, where I wandered into some old... <laughs> Shepherd's cave. I was the lost sheep, yes. I was the sheep that wandered from the flock, but off into some shepherd's caves and also overlooking these shepherd's fields where there you see even the, the old stone fences that still remain from those places closer into town where they would bring the sheep in from the ranges and the hills all around about and keep them closer in on those folds there and uh, would, would guard them, protect them while they were in, in town. And then they would take them from there out to forage uh, on the hills and fields and valleys and, and, and so forth. 
But so those are the shepherds' fields in Bethlehem. I, I say that because we're going to focus on Bethlehem. There is, a, there is a passage in the prophet Micah that specifically predicts that the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer is going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. You might be familiar with it. It's in Micah chapter 5, and now we can go back to that screen that I skipped once before. In Micah chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 1 to 5, and you will find this on page, what page did I say? 778 if you're using the church Bible. So follow along with me. I'm going to turn to a couple of different places along the way. But first, let's read Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us. Oh, daughter of troops, that's a fortified city. A siege has been laid against a fortified city. Micah is, is, is looking now into nearer history when troops are going to surround Jerusalem and Jerusalem is going to be carried into captivity into Babylon. Oh, daughter of troops, a siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The ruler of Israel at that time, King Zedekiah, is going to be humbled by the Babylonian king. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too small, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. There's somebody coming, whose comings forth is from of old, from ancient days, from eternity past, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand. This is implying the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Israel has already been divided, and the northern kingdom has already been carried away into captivity, into Assyria. The nation has already been torn up and split apart. But the rest of his brethren shall return to the people of Israel. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure from now. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Would you pray with me? Father, if there's anything that we long for, it is peace. It is peace, not merely in the end of hostility, but is that fullness of blessing in life that you have intended for us to have. It is life as it was supposed to be before any fall, before any curse, before any sin. Lord, it's, it's life with all of the joy, without any of that hurt or sorrow. Father, we long for that kind of fullness of relationship with one another and with you that is peace. And you have given us one, Lord, who gives that peace. Father, would you help us to understand something more this morning about why Bethlehem? As we think about Bethlehem through the next couple of weeks then and toward Christmas, as we have conversations with others, that we might, Lord, be reminded again, that we be reminded of, of something deeper about this message of Bethlehem and what difference it makes to us and for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to, to open it up to our eyes and to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Micah in this passage, he's relating present troubles in, 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 in the midst of God's overall plan. God has an overall plan. He is working. There are present troubles. There's disaster looming, but that's not all. There's more beyond that. There's something else that's coming after that. And then there's 
more trouble to come after that, but finally there will be this one who will bring peace. There's a coming glory in verse 13 of chapter 4. Look back just, just, just before chapter 5. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves brawn. You shall beat in pieces many people and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is written to an oppressed people who were surrounded by massive armies and who see no hope. And yet, their day will come. God, there is a coming glory. But first, Israel's ruler is going to be humbled, chapter 5 and verse 1. And yet there's a deliverer to come, whose comings forth are from everlasting. He's going to come from Bethlehem. And I want to ask the question, why Bethlehem? Make a lot of big deal about Bethlehem this time of year. All the Christians want to, want to travel to Bethlehem. It's a big thing around Christmas. Sometimes they can go there. Sometimes there's uprisings and protests and things that, that prevent access uh, to people from Israel into, into that part of the West Bank and into Bethlehem. But why Bethlehem? Why this town? Why this particular place? Well, it's not just to fulfill some prophetic factoid. It's not like the Bible in the Old Testament in prophecy has all kinds of these little pieces and all of them need to be fulfilled. And when all of those little random pieces that are here and there and there, when they all line up and they're all fulfilled in one person, that's how you'll know that's the Christ. Oftentimes we look at prophecy that way. And we just gather a whole bunch of random factoids that were prophetic and when they're all fulfilled together, then we know this is the one. Well, all of those prophecies will be fulfilled in one, but that's really not the best way to understand prophecy. Actually, the prophets declare that the Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem because Bethlehem was where God had chosen he was going to be born. In fact, he must be born there in order to fill out a bigger picture. So it's not just a random piece that now has to be fulfilled, but there's something more. There's another bigger answer to the reason why Bethlehem. And it's bigger than the Old Testament because it reaches into your life. There's something for you in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a place of humble beginnings. We first come across Bethlehem in the Old Testament when, when uh, Jacob and his family are, 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 are returning to the land that was promised to Abraham. And they get almost to Bethlehem. They're traveling, they're traveling the Ridge Highway. And they're headed south. And they get almost to Bethlehem. And uh, outside of Bethlehem, they're... There, Jacob's wife, Rachel, his beloved wife, dies in childbirth. And she's buried there on that ridge patriarchal highway, just near to Bethlehem. That's why later on in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is going to speak of, he's going to prophesy that Rachel is weeping for her children. And he's talking about that on that same highway, Israelites out of Judah are going to be led away into captivity, even as Micah describes. And Rachel figuratively, is weeping along the way because her children, the descendants from her in Israel, are no more. That's going to be picked up on with Herod, isn't it? When Herod kills the innocent children, the babies, everybody under two in that little village of Bethlehem, that quote is going to be lifted up again. Rachel weeping for her children because Herod's oppression 
under Roman rule is just like that Babylonian captivity before. The people are powerless. What can they do? When will God deliver them? That's when we first come across Bethlehem in the Old Testament. It becomes probably better known in the book of Ruth. This little personal story that's tucked away during the days of the judges. And it's, not, it's, it's a love story, but it's not a completely happy story, is it? In fact, it starts with great trouble. It starts with death and sorrow and drought and famine. So that Naomi comes back and she says, don't call me Naomi pleasant, call me Mara bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. That's in Bethlehem. She goes away to Moab. Her, her husband dies in Moab. Her son dies in Moab. She's left absolute destitute, a widow. She goes to return, and Ruth, one of her Moabite daughters, is going to return with her. The other is not. She's going to go back to her own people where she's, she's quite sure her fortunes are going to be better. But Ruth sticks with Naomi. Ruth, who the book is named after. And they return to Bethlehem, but they have no hope. They have no expectation. There's no way Naomi has any other sons, and she can't raise up a son that she could give now as another husband to Ruth. And who else is going to take this Moabite widow as their husband? Not in a time like the days of the, judgment, of the judges where each is doing what is right in his own eyes. And yet there is one in Bethlehem. There is a El Gabor, a, a mighty man of valor and integrity and character named Boaz. And the story that begins in such tragedy ends in rejoicing. It ends in, in, the, in the kind of rejoicing that God, God has brought a redeemer. Now, in the book of Ruth, that, that shows then that this little town of Bethlehem, it becomes David's town. It becomes the town, town of David's ascendants because Ruth gives birth to a bouncing baby boy and that boy is the grandfather, great-grandfather, I forget now, be the, of, of David himself. He's going to, I can't remember. Anyway, a couple of generations out of him is going to come Jesse and then David. The, the, the number doesn't matter so much. Read the story, Ruth chapter 4. But So David is going to be from Bethlehem. There's the point. Well, so Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem later on because Jesus is descended from David, right? And so if David was from there, then Jesus has to be from there. That's how, you, that's how we'll recognize him. But what if David is from Bethlehem because Jesus was going to be. Let's turn it around a little bit. I want you to turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's something about Bethlehem and its place of humble beginnings that is pointed out to David as well. You see, David was an unlikely king. Saul was the obvious king. Saul stood head and shoulders. He was your typical warrior king. He was the strong guy. He was the big guy. He was the guy literally everybody else looked up to. David, when Samuel came to David's house, when Samuel came to anoint one of Jesse's sons that the Lord would show him was, was going to be God's king, he went from the oldest down through all of them. And they looked good. They looked promising. And, and, but none of them were the one. And Samuel says to, to, Samuel says to Jesse, David's father, do you have any other sons? Because God sent me to, for one of your sons, but none of these are the one. Well, there's little David. 
David's out tending the sheep, you know. He just, so this, this, this youngster comes in, and he's, he's a unique child because he's a redhead. Now, redheads are unique anyway. So if there are any of you that are redheads here today, you can feel special because God's Word calls you beautiful, okay? David was beautiful in that he, has, he had ruddy appearance, right? He was, he, so, but he's unique, He's special. He's different. Now, those of you who are teenagers know that being different, even if it means you're beautiful, are not, is not necessarily a good thing to the crowd at large. In a field full of dark-haired, dark-eyed, uh, olive-skinned teens, to be the one with a reddish, ruddy complexion, to be a ginger, was probably not always in your favor, Right? So there's David. David comes in, the least likely of the bunch and the youngest to boot. The one they didn't even bother to bring in when a king was going to be chosen, and he's the one of humble beginnings. And God points that out to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to, out of all of his victories, David wants to build a house, a temple for God to be properly worshipped in. He says, I have this wonderful house to live in, but God lives in a tent. Well, God doesn't really live in a tent. He's bigger than that. But David wants to build a temple. And God says to him in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning of verse 8, a passage that we know we describe as the expression of the Davidic covenant, a covenant, a promise to David concerning his descendants. Therefore, Nathan the prophet, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David, you were nobody. I made you somebody. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. David wasn't the valiant warrior because he was a great tactician and strategy. He was a valiant and victorious warrior because he trusted God who gave him the victory. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. This is the day that has not yet arrived. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David, you want to build me a house? David, I'm going to make for you a house. I'm going to make your family a house, a family that will endure. The family and house of David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Out of all of David's offspring, all of his descendants, and that royal Davidic line that God is establishing, the house of David, there's going to be one who's going to arise. And already God is speaking in the singular here of this one who will come. He seems to merge different sons as he, as he moves through this prophecy. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And there's a promise there of a king that we look for, a king who must be the son of David, but a king who would be greater than David ever was, a king who would build a house, a temple for the living God. And we know his name, Jesus. And we know the temple that he is building for God's worship and pleasure. 
But it's, a, it's all out of humble origins. It's out of little Deb, David who God took from the fields tending the sheep, doing the sheep, sorry, doing something that seemed very insignificant. And yet that's the way God chose to do it. David's a very unlikely king. His family, in fact, later on, they lost the ballot. They lost the election. They lost not only the popular vote, but they lost the electoral college. Ten to two. There were 12 votes, 12 tribes in that electoral college, and 10 of them walked. 10 of them went north and never looked back until they got to Assyria. Only two stayed, and yet God continued his promise with the rump and remnant of a kingdom. God continued to work what he was doing. God said his house would endure. A son would come who would do that for David. The city of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, is a town of humble beginnings. Not only that, it's a place of bread and lambs. Remember I told you about the story of Ruth already, that Bethlehem means house of bread, Beit Lechem. House, bread. It's the house of bread. This was the bread basket. There were fields all around it. And there was, there was wheat harvest and barley harvest. And yet when there's no rain, there's no harvest. When there's drought, there's famine. And that's how the book of Ruth starts. And this family leaves town to go somewhere else because there's nothing left here in Bethlehem. There is no bread. But then they heard word. Ruth chapter 1. God had visited his people in giving them bread. Hang on to that phrase. God visited his people. God came near to them, visited them in giving them bread. So Ruth and Naomi come back, and God provides for them. So a, a story that ends or begins in bitter hopelessness concludes in rejoicing that God has given a Redeemer. That's how the story ends. God, Ruth and Boaz, with a lot of, lot, of, lot of planning and engineering, Ruth and Boaz finally are married. And after that, Ruth and Boaz have a bouncing little baby. And the whole city, all the ladies come together and they have a bridal shower. That's where we get these things, right? They have a bridal shower and they're all celebrating this baby that's born and they're, and they're proclaiming over the blessing that is going to come from this child who's going to start out of the line of Boaz from Judah and Ruth the Moabitess, there's this new line that's going to be the line of David. That's a humble beginning. A Moabitess widow. Bethlehem is a place of humble beginning, but it's a place of bread and of lambs. God visited his people in giving them bread. This family comes back with no hope, with no inheritance, and God gives them a heritage and a redeemer. Jesus, the true bread of heaven, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's his description. Jesus is the true bread from heaven, and what has he done? He has visited his people. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is born in Bethlehem, the city that is not only the breadbasket of the area, but that little village remained into the first century the place, the main source of lambs that were used in the offerings in the temple. The temple flocks were kept in Bethlehem because that was a good place for sheep that was relatively close to Jerusalem. So there they were. 
Where else would the Lamb of God come who would lay down his life for our sin, taking the place of all of those sacrifices that pointed to him? Where would he come from than among the temple flocks? And who would know it first but those shepherds that tended those temple flocks? Why Bethlehem? Because it's a place of humble beginnings, and that's where Jesus comes into the world, but also because it's a place of bread and of lambs. Jesus, the Lamb of God, from Bethlehem, the town of a boy shepherd made king, was the place where the king of kings would also come. But neither of those, those, those all line up the pictures. Those begin to fill in a broader Old Testament story that all is moving towards culmination in Jesus. But none of those are the chief reason, though they begin to hint toward it. The chief reason is this, because God uses little things. God uses the weak, the seemingly insignificant, to quietly work his greatest wonders. Go back to Micah 5.2 again where it mentions Bethlehem, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Too little to be among. What does that mean? Bethlehem was just a little place. Bethlehem was a small village. Bethlehem was too small to be mentioned when the apportions, the, the allotments for each of the 12 tribes are, are described in Daniel, and they list those, and it includes this city and this city and this city and this city, and it gives sort of the boundaries of each allotment for each tribe, and Judah is given the part that includes Bethlehem. But Bethlehem is not mentioned in Joshua 15, in that inheritance, in that allotment, because it's too small to matter. That's what he means when he says, too little, too small to be named among the, 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 the clans or the, or the cities or the locations of Judah. And yet from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler, one who will be king. It's from a small place. It was a small, we, we sometimes talk about the city of Bethlehem, the city of David. It was not a city. It was a village. It was a small place, even in the first century, it was a small place. It was enough place for the shepherding families to live. There was no roadside hotel there. There was no Motel 6. So when you read in, that word should be translated the guest room, not a guest house. All right? It was the place, normally the upstairs room in a four-room typical Israelite home. It was the, one of the upstairs rooms in that four-room home that would have been the place to have guests stay should they come. But it was already full because there were others in the family lineage of David who had also traveled back for the census. There was no room in that room. They slept in the garage. That's kind of what happened. Where the, where the crib was, because where the animals would be brought in at night as well, the, the, the small number of family animals. So there in Bethlehem, this small little village, think of it kind of like Brush Prairie. There's a store there. There's a lot of homes there. They have a post office. It's an official town. But it ain't much, is it? In fact, the main highway from here to there goes right by it. Bethlehem was like that. Look on a map. Bethlehem is just off of the highway. When the big road came through, they somehow went by Bethlehem instead of through Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was sidelined. It would remain a small and forgettable place. There was no societal, no demographic, no strategic significance. It matters only 
because of what God did there. Because God uses little things. God uses small things. God uses the weak. Am I just saying that because it sounds nice? Am I just describing that because it makes us feel better? Maybe, maybe we're small things. Maybe I'm small potatoes. And I want to believe that God would use small things when it seems like for the really big stuff that happens in the world, God uses really big things. Well, turn to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. After the four Gospels, after the book of Acts, the book of Romans, you'll come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul holds up a mirror here and he says, okay, guys, gals, let's pause and take a look here. Take a look at yourselves for a minute. Seriously. Sometimes our estimation of ourselves gets, gets a little high. And God brings us back to earth here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers and sisters, for not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Ouch. Not many of you were wise. Now you're still feeling okay because the room's full, so that really refers to the other people around you. Not many were wise like you. Okay, well, we'll give you some room. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth from a family that others would recognize and look up to. A family like the Carlsons. Because whatever else about us, everybody knows Carl, right? No. Nobody's heard of Carl. I haven't done the uh, whole... Um, uh, DNA, uh, what's the little tree thing, leaves? Ancestry.com, haven't bothered, okay? One of my aunts did a nice, wonderful uh, history of our family on my, on, my, on my mom's side, and that's been very interesting reading, so I'm not picking fun at that. Please don't, don't write me a letter afterwards. But um, I'm not looking for royalty in my past. I have royalty in my future. I have royalty in my present. I am an heir of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. And it's got nothing to do with Carl. It's got everything to do with Jesus. You see, in my earthly family, and probably yours too, most of us, not many wise, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is our confidence. He is our surety. That's where I'll take my stand. Not upon myself, not on what I've got, not on what I can do, because of what Jesus has done for me. Because of who he is for me, because of who he is has made me something that I was never on my own and could never be. God chooses to use little things. God chooses to use the weak, the seemingly insignificant, to quietly work his greatest wonders. That's what he did in Bethlehem, and that's what he'll do in Brush Prairie. 
God will use you and me, not because of you or I, but because he says he will. Some of you are seniors. You're getting old, right? Along with that, you sleep less. You have more time. And yet you have less energy to do anything with in that time, right? And sometimes that feels miserable. I have little strength. What could I do? Well, you'll have bits and opportunities to say something. People in your own family, somebody around you, an encounter, seemingly chance that God gives you. And who are you? But I urge you, all that extra time you've got, read more, pray more so that you will be ready for just that little short opportunity because it probably won't last long. And that's good because you don't have a whole lot of energy anyway. But be ready for that. You know, it's funny. Out of all the fun things I did in India, there was one line that I said that I think everybody remembered in our group and some of the friends that we were with more than anything else. I was describing, complaining really, um, I, I learned how common the, the, we had something called sudden sermon. There were sudden banquets. We'd go somewhere and didn't know there was a banquet plan. There was a big dinner, and we, and we better be ready to eat again. Also, there was sudden sermon. We'd go somewhere, and I had no idea that I was going to be preaching there. And here we are. Oh, Bob, now would you bring, okay, be ready to preach prayer or die at a moment's notice. I stopped saying that. It wasn't funny anymore. And, and I mentioned, happened to mention at one time, in the midst of one of those sudden sermons to that, um, you know, if you want me to speak for, an, for, for, for five minutes, you, you ought to give me a month's notice. Because if I'm going to say something meaningful and helpful in just five minutes, it's going to take a whole month to get ready for that. If you want me to speak for 10, 15 minutes, you can let me know a couple weeks in advance. You want me to speak for an hour? Let me know anytime. He said, oh, that's what happens each time. Bob didn't know he was speaking. But, but that's why I say, reading, praying, preparing yourself. You said, you know the story. I know the things I'd say if I had the chance. Pray that up because you get a little window and you want to make that matter. You want God to make that matter. But you will have those windows. You have family and people around you and read, prepare, pray so that when God gives you that little opportunity for the little old you, you're ready to plant a seed that God's going to do something with. Maybe you're a mom. And let's face it, the kids are driving you crazy. You would love to get away. You would go run off. You'd love to go run off and do something else that seemed more meaningful and more, more productive and more effective and mattered in all kinds of big ways. And yet, here you're stuck. You'd like to do something more, but you have no energy and no time. And you wish you could get some more sleep. But remember, it's said that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the nation. There is nothing more valuable than that little, seemingly insignificant, and so lowly esteemed work in our world of raising up a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, preparing a strong foundation that they don't even realize till later the difference that that can make in their lives in what God does in and through them. Easily overlooked, and yet so significant. Your job sometimes feels like filling squares. 
You're ticking off boxes. You're going through the motions. You're just getting the work done. I got to do this to provide for my family. It doesn't seem very meaningful, but at least it's work. It's not good work, but it's work to be had. Funny thing here in the church, think about church ministry. And sometimes there are people that come and, did you know, sometimes people visit us on Sunday mornings. I don't know if you knew that, but sometimes there's somebody here on a Sunday morning. Let me look around. The one hasn't been here before. And you think, well, that's important now. The impr- the, how we represent our Lord and his gospel are important, right? You think, man, that's a lot on Bob. Well, no, not so much, actually. You see, I don't have a whole lot to do with their impression of our church. A little bit, but not much. You know who does? The church janitor. The facilities guy. Because... First impressions from the parking lot into the front door, the, the cleanliness of the bathrooms, what the, what the room looks like as they come in. Is it all disheveled and a mess or is it neat and tidy and orderly? That little work, that insignificant work that nobody wants to volunteer for, that's the stuff that makes a first impression. First five minutes. Well, in that first five minutes are all of you. Yeah. And what... What somebody who visits sees in the vitality and the authenticity of your expression of your faith to one another that overflows even to them. I'm not talking about a planned and strategic searching out a visitor and landing on them. No, that's scary. Come on, let's not do that. But, but welcoming people who come like you welcome others. And that, that flows out of a natural spiritual vitality in life and love for the Lord that you're, just overflows out of you toward others. That makes a big difference. And that, and that sets up for things that relate to the music or things that relate to the sermon that come from the pastor on, uh, up here on the platform. But if the first impression was otherwise... We've already lost them in terms of our testimony of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for them. It's the little things that God uses, you see? And that's not only true in church, that's true all over life. Your job is your place to worship the Lord. This is your place of, for faithfulness that heaven is observing and angels are learning from. People watch you. People will listen to you. Be ready. Be, be, be prayed up. Be praying for the people around you. Be praying for yourself. Oh, God, would you use me today to somehow help, encourage, minister to, or, or share the gospel with somebody who needs to hear it? Maybe you're just a kid. You don't want to be weak, so you act tough. You don't want to be foolish. You don't want people to think you're foolish, so you just keep quiet. You don't want to be looked down on. You don't want to be despised. You don't want to be the one that others mock. And so what do you do? You, you, you buy stuff to sort of buy your way in. You do stuff that others do. So you, they, they'll, they'll think that you're one of them, that you fit. No, no. God uses those who are weak. God those, uses those that others think foolish. God uses those that others look down on. You don't have to make a splash just to be faithful in word and in deed. Be strong, speak well, walk worthy. Let me wrap it up this way. If we return to Micah chapter 5, remind you again of those verses following the Bethlehem verse, verse 2. 
Verse 3, he will give them up until the time. There will be trouble still to come. She who is in labor has given birth. The rest of his brothers will return. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be our peace. He will be our peace. How will that happen? There was trouble ahead for Israel. They had left God, and yet God would not leave them. But God was not done. He would be their peace. They thought they had public opinion on their side. Now was the time to act. The crowds would protest and riot, demanding action. The schemers knew that the political leadership was insecure and weak in character. They could be bullied. And so they did. The bullies bullied the one who seemed to be weak. They arrested him under cover of darkness. They railroaded him through a corrupt trial. And early in the morning, they marched him off to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate tried to twist this way and that way to get himself out of this mess that he'd become entangled in, but he could not. A seemingly helpless man, already brought low and hatefully despised by these civic leaders, would die that day because of the sinful manipulations of others and because of the disruption of peace that they had brought upon the city. But actually, our Lord was not helpless, He was not weak. And though brought low, he was the Lord of glory. A king, not of this world. Yes, he would die. But no one took his, from life, his, his life from him. He laid it down on his own accord. He laid it down willingly for us. The one who was strongest became weak for us. And that's where God did his greatest work. In the face of their hate and hostility, in the words of Micah 5, he became our peace. That's what we celebrate at this table. That's what we reenact and remind ourselves here, is that God, who was God, made himself low. To fulfill his greatest work, God himself became weak. He appeared foolish and lowly. And because of this, God raised him up. And God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did he do that? Through weakness through lowliness, through being despised of men. The message of Bethlehem is this message to you and I. We join him in that same ministry of peace when we are willing to be weak, to seem foolish, to even be despised for the same purpose that we might be the ones to bring the peace of God to the people around us. As we step toward this table now, I'm going to invite those who are serving to come forward. I want us to pause first for some reflection. I want us to just think for a moment, how could I, as weak as I am, as seemingly relatively foolish as I am, I don't know all the answers, how could God use me 
and my weakness and my frailty, in the lack of command of respect that I might have from others, still, would God then use me? Exactly. Exactly. And all the credit will have to go to him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come humbly to this table. We come here as recipients of your grace, a grace that removes, forgives our sins because of our faith in Jesus alone as our Savior, but a grace that not only gives us what we in no way deserve, but also does for us what we could never do. Your grace is an enabling grace. In Christ alone is our forgiveness, our standing before you, and also our power for victory, even through our own weakness. And so, Father, we again trust ourselves to you. As we take this bread and as we take this cup, Lord, we do that in confession of Jesus who died for our sins to be our Savior and of confidence of his life then in us. In Jesus' name, amen.